it's time to talk about something that's serious. You're getting swindled. You're absolutely getting robbed if you're going to a restaurant paying $70 to just eat the breadsticks and get the under-seasoned food in a to-go box to take home later. If you want some serious food, and especially if you're in the mood for Italian food, you need to get down to Jonesboro, Arkansas, to Lazari Italian Oven. You can contact them today at 1-870-931-4700. If you're trying to take your girl out on your first date and you want her to call you back, go ahead and go down there. Paul and Mike, they've classed the place up, but it's got the same great flavor as it's had for the last 20 years. Go ahead and enjoy Lazari Italian Oven. Hey, Brian, do they do uh, takeout meals for um, Lazari's Italian Oven? They do. Well, that's good because if you're looking for a place to go after you get that food, contact our friends Mike and Lisa Barber. They're licensed realtors at the Jonesboro Realty Group. If you're looking to buy, sell, or rent, Mike and Lisa are there to help you guys out. You know what? It doesn't hurt to take a look around and see what's out there. You can call 870-761-1000. That's the first step. 870-761-1000. It's time to cool that house down. Tony, why don't you let us know something about Anderson Heat and Air? You know what? And Matt Anderson with Anderson Heat and Air is there to take care of you. You know, it doesn't matter if that house is all hot from the summertime and you can't get it to cool down. You've got it set on 68 and it's 78 in there. That's there to help you out. Maybe you just don't know what you're doing wrong. He's there to help you out. It don't matter what you got going on. It don't matter if you can't figure it out call Anderson Heat and Air today and here's the thing they travel all over northeast Arkansas it doesn't matter if you're in Jonesboro don't matter if you're in Newport they go just about anywhere that you can think of and you got to call them because it's about to get cool outside if your house the heat hasn't been working you got to get in touch with Nat Anderson you got to get in touch with Anderson Heat and Air Tony will you tell me how 870-664-1967. That's Nat Anderson, 870-664-1967. Hey, have we ever steered you wrong? Give me a second. Let's 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 read some of our hate mail real quick. Oh, oh wait, we don't have none because we have been <laughs> honest. Every time we've told you about Craig O'Brien's Seal It Up Corporation, Tony, how do we get a touch with Craig to take care of our parking lots? Well, you can do it a couple of different ways, Brian. You can go to Seal It Up on Facebook. You can go to his website, sealitupincorporated.com, or you can call him at 870-897-4787. He don't just do parking lots. He does driveways, line striping, pop fills. Whatever you need him to do, he takes care of it. You know what? Your, your house is your biggest investment. Why don't you just take care of it? Take care of that driveway. 870-897-4787. Yeah, don't pull up in some kind of trash. We got to say a big congratulations to Farah and Kip, who just recently got married, and we got to give them a shout-out. And we especially got to thank Farah for coming on a few weeks back and having a very serious conversation with Tony and I. Brian, we took the time to sit down with her and hear her story and you know what? We just took the tape off of a lot of people's mouths with this one. Um, we go over a broad range of topics, anywhere from suicide to depression to divorce. But we're going to let you guys hear this yeah, one. Yeah, this one's going to get down right where people live because there's several people out there that are listening that have dealt with the two Ds that sometimes go unanswered, depression and divorce. Thank you for tuning in to The Crucial Conversation. That's the, that's the part that we don't account for. I didn't count the cost, right? I thought, okay, maybe my family will be sad, but I'm, tell, I'm, t- I'm letting myself believe that things will be better. Instead, I did not 
I did not think that my that my parents, that my family would probably live the rest of their life blaming themselves. Hey guys, this is Brian and I'm Tony and you're listening to the Crucial Conversation podcast. It was just a few weeks ago we started the Crucial Conversation podcast, and there was a trailer we had released early on where we talked about some of the motivations where we got the idea of having this exact podcast. And in the trailer, because you have to go through all kinds of hoops to get on iTunes, we had to take the trailer down because we needed to have full-length podcasts. You couldn't just have a 10-minute introduction, Tony. And one of the things I made mention of is how there was a suicide that had affected the church organization I was a part of. And I was reading on Facebook, an individual made a post that said that I hope now, basically, that the UPC would pay attention now that they have lost one of their own to mental health issues. That's right. And you know what happens, Tony, is not so much anymore, but there was a time in which there was a lot of um, emphasis put on, I want a preacher that steps on my toes. Mm-hmm. I, want, I want a preacher that tells it like it is. And, you know, we, we want that. I want that. Even though this generation doesn't really want that, I still have a little bit of connection to that. And whenever I read that post, I got uncomfortable. In fact, I got, I got mad, considered unfollowing the person who posted it. But you know what? It didn't just make me mad. It stepped on my toes a little bit. I'm a very junior minister, but whenever I read that, I began to think about it, and I decided with you that whatever small platform we can have, I want to give attention to the things that aren't really addressed. But they matter. Because they do matter. And, Farah, we are thankful to have you on because it was your Facebook fo- post. That you wanted to unfollow. That I wanted to unfollow. <laughs> And so I wanted a chance to get to know you a little bit better. I've been connected to you on Facebook for a while, but I don't think we've ever met in person until tonight. And so Tony and I are thankful for you coming to to Jonesboro to talk to us tonight. We want to pick your brain about some things because you have some experiences that we have not had. And so you can give a very unique insight into the heart and the mind of an individual that has walked in the shoes that we've never worn. Right. And Brian and I, we don't really know your story. Uh, my wife, she really had a big role on us getting a hold of you. And Melissa knows you, which is Brian's wife. But me and Brian really doesn't don't know you. We'd love to hear your story. And we would love for you to share your testimony. And like Brian said, thank you for coming on. I'm very honored to be here. Thank so, you for having so, me. So Farah, to those who do not know, she is a apostolic recording artist. She has a few CDs that I are out. I would not say that. Hey, weren't I you just in Poland? That. Uh, yes, I was, but that wasn't. And what were you for doing me. in Poland? <laughs> Fine, I was recording with POK, which is my home church. <laughs> yes, so you you have heard Farah's voice on Indiana Bible College albums. She's had her own album out. I think the title of it was First, correct? And then uh, it was under my former name, Farah Newton. 
Yes, and then uh, she's been in several of the Pentecostals of Katy. I think she's putting out a, a CD coming up called The Filipino Experience or oh, something. Oh, my word. <laughs> <laughs> and so we'll talk about that towards the end of the podcast because I know that you've been working on that, so that way our guests can get connected with your music. Um, one thing I saw on a Facebook post you did a while back in order to get into the conversation is you talked about how your life seems to be in periods of four years. And I'd like to, for you to walk us through uh, the first four years and start taking us through the journey of where you've been to where you are today. We're talking about the first four years of my life, right? Yeah. Like, okay. I got the Facebook post that archived here if you need to go back and read what you posted. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to. I mean, that took a while just, you know, when I was making connections for my, I guess, what do you call it, uh, significant number. You know, I was going back, and um, I'd found out that the number four was very significant to me. So um, so we have the Facebook post up here so I can go through it. <clears throat> so uh, age four, um, that was when, that was the age I was when I was adopted um, into the Easter home. And then when I was eight years old, uh, we had just relocated to um, Memphis, Tennessee from the Fraser, Tennessee Church. Uh, the church that I was adopted out of, which that was Brother Lewis's church. I think it's um, Fountain of Truth or something now. So how did that happen? Uh, what, what was so? Were you born in the United States or how did how, again? Because we don't know your story. How did the adoption uh, come about? So I was born in Manila, Philippines. My um, my biological father was uh, he's the white guy. He's, uh, I just found out through Ancestry DNA that I'm like a quarter Italian. And so my biological mother, she was Filipino. And from what I understand, they had met when he was stationed at the naval base um, in the 80s. So I was born in Manila, Philippines. He had family um, in, in California or something, apparently. And they had met as pen pals or something. And after, shortly after my brother was born, she just up and left. So he didn't really know what to do with two kids. So he went, he went, he took us back to California um, <clears throat> and heard of a, like a halfway house on the east side of Tennessee. Well, we had a flight delay and it landed in Memphis. And it must have been long enough that we were delayed there that he finally took a cab and said, and, and this was late at night. Um, he took a cab and told the, the taxi driver, I said, I'm not, I'm not from this part of town. Um, do you know of any, do you, where can we go? And the, ta the taxi driver said, well, I, I only know of one safe place. And he dropped us off at Brother Lewis's church. And from that church, we were connected to, sorry, Tony's dropping his phone over here. <laughs> He's making all kinds of distractions, but it's all right. <laughs> well, we won't kick him off the podcast this time. No. So we were connected to um, a family within that church. Their last names are the Massingales. Massingales, I'm sorry. And they um, they fostered my brother and I. Oh, are we live? Oh, That's we're, alive. We're, do, we're doing a live feed right now, just a sneak oh, peek for great. some people. <laughs> um, so he, we were fostered with that family for about, I think I think I was there for a solid year before I was adopted into the Easter family. Um, somewhere halfway through, my parents um, adopted Gabe. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got frog in my throat. Um, 
than the Massengales who were who were in the process of adop- adopting me, you know, called my parents and said, "Look, she's she's not happy here, you know, because Gabe did not Gabe and I didn't understand what was going on." And so, um, and this the Massengill family had a, I think they evangelized from what I remember or from what I was told they evangelized, and so seeing my brother was kind of inconsistent. <clears throat> so they finally called the Easter family and said, you know, do you want her? She's obviously not happy here. And so that's that's how that came about. Yeah, so, so. I, I don't know your parents, but your grandparents, they were members here at this church for yeah, a short period of time. Yeah. And I love your grandparents. Your brother, <laughs> brother Gan is such a great gentleman. And then uh, he's got some great fishing stories. Yeah, yeah. He was fishing a fishing hole, uh, catching all kinds of fish, and ended up. uh, They ended up putting some no trespassing signs, and they kicked him out. And turns out it was the same fishing hole that me and one of my friends had been fishing in, jumping jumping the gate. And we would told him, "Was like, brother Gan, you know, you can just jump that gate anytime." And uh, uh, he might have tried it. Who knows? But. Uh, and your your grandmother, she was such a sweet lady, and so we we miss them here in Jonesboro. Now they've people. gone back over on the other side of the river. Yeah. And so, uh, in in that the first four years, so you were adopted into an apostolic home, and so one of the 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 fours, the sections of four is, uh, I think when you said you were eight years old, you received the Holy Ghost. I was. Do you remember the service and how that <laughs> happened, or do you just remember? This is about how old I was. <clears throat> no, it's uh, that when I got the Holy Ghost it was. It's a funny story. I think I've posted about it a long, a while ago. So I was eight years old. Um, Brother Greg Godwin was preaching at Brother Black's Church in Memphis, which was where we were. I'd grown up in my whole life. <clears throat> and my brother decided, I think it was the last night of that revival, he decided, I'm going to wear my whole, what he called his Holy Ghost suit. It was just a suit. I'm going to wear my Holy Ghost suit, and I'm going to get the Holy Ghost tonight. And me... Just thinking, okay, you can't just decide to get the Holy Ghost, right? <laughs> Me thinking, uh, he's not going to do it. He's too shy. He's not going to go up there. Well, he sure did. He marched right up front and lifted his hands, and he got the Holy Ghost. And me, not wanting to be left out and marked the unsaved one, I was like, I'm not about to be showed up. So I stood right beside him. <laughs> yeah. I stood right beside him, and I got the Holy Ghost too. And it was, uh, um, it was really awesome. And it's something I remember because then my pastor, Brother Black, you know, brought us up on the platform and he said you know they got the Holy Ghost tonight and from what I remember I don't think he did that to a lot of kids so (laughs) I felt very special and then and then after that of course we got we got baptized so anytime I see brother Godwin I I say do you remember me I got the Holy Ghost when I was little so yeah it was mostly because I didn't want to be (laughs) yeah right (laughs) I may have had different motives than my brother so you you grew up underneath Terry Black's ministry and um, the Pentecostal church in Memphis what does that church and Terry Black mean to you I absolutely love Terry Black I respect him Um, he he was there for me throughout my teenage years you know, he defended me when, you know, when a youth pastor came in and thought that I was causing trouble. And he was like, Paris never given me any ounce of trouble. You know, he, he's, he has been a support, a support to me, you know, through Bible college. You know, I, I did not want to do anything. I, I, th- I think I had an opportunity to intern somewhere after my, uh, after my freshman year. And I missed out on it because I, I, I wasn't going to give these people an answer. I said, I, I'm not, 
going to make a move until I hear back from my pastor. <clears throat> of course, when he found out that I'd missed out on it, um, he said, "Fair, you don't, you don't have to call me. I'm, I'm giving you the go ahead. You know, you got the green light. Whatever you feel like the Lord, you want the Lord to do." And I said, "Well, no, Brother Black. I said, it means a lot to me to have your blessing. So um, he has, he has, um, he's been a major part of some of the, some significant life decisions for me." So you went to Indiana Bible College before then. In your teen years, um, you've been very public about some of the struggles that you had. Um, in the post that I was making reference to in the beginning, you talked about how there are two things that seem to be taboo in the um, in the apostolic movement, and those two things are depression and divorce. And I think you said at 17 years old, uh, or, or I can't remember exactly the the, the year that you you said you were that you began to feel. Um, battle with depression. Can you talk us through that um, and give a voice to uh, one of these subjects that you believe that are not addressed in the level that they should be within the church? Um, so when I was a, a senior in, in high school, this is, this is back in 2004, so fall of 2004, um, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a pretty quiet, peaceful home, <clears throat> pretty perfect life. I'm sorry. I've got this frog in my throat, so I'm clearing it as much as possible. Um, so life really didn't get real, probably until around the age of 17. Um, one of my sisters was going through a divorce. You know, uh, the brother-in-law that had, you know, he had had an affair. You know, he was he was the big brother figure that I had always wanted growing up. And so of course my world was shattered knowing that, you know, they were getting a divorce. It's senior year of high school, you know, didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And, and it's so, it's funny to me. I know that that's something I shouldn't say about suicide, but it's funny to me thinking back if I, if I'm comparing um, what I faced as a teenager to what I've lived through in these last 10 years, I would have had, <clears throat> way more reasons to to attempt suicide back in 2014 compared to 2004. Um, but like I said, I think the main difference was that when I was a teenager, life was just now getting really real, and it was getting really real fast. And I didn't know how to handle it. You know, I didn't I didn't know how to let go. I didn't know how to adequately express or communicate what I was feeling. I didn't I didn't know how to respond you know, to these life, not only this life change within my family, but trying to decide well, what was I going to do with my life? Because I'm, I'm a very, I'm a pretty complacent, naturally, I'm pretty complacent. I, I get stuck in a rut probably a lot easier than I should. Um, and so, you know, the, the decision that was being forced, not really being forced, but you know, you, you kind of have to figure out what you're going to do with your life in a matter of, you know, six months to graduation. And so I wasn't, I wasn't prepared to handle that. And I didn't have, I didn't have any examples of what outlets or what options I had to kind of express that. So, and I, and in that time in my life, I was dating somebody that I, I should not have been dating. Um, as a matter of fact, before the suicide, I'd broken things off with him because I just, I, I didn't even want to, I didn't want him to be around and he wasn't able to understand what I was going through. So, you know, those were the juvenile reasons 
And, you know, the suicide rate among teenagers, uh, I would think if I'm trying to put myself back in my 17-year-old body, you know, I would think it would be the same thing. It's just a lot of pressure. And this is the first time that life is suddenly hitting you. And we all remember, you know, trying to figure out what we're going to do with our lives. That that sort of not knowing how to move forward, I think, was the catalyst to this suicide attempt. So were you, you are currently going to school whenever you attempted it? Suicide. I was. Yeah, okay. I was in high school. I want to ask you a question regarding that. Whenever you attempted that suicide, you, you've already mentioned that you were adopted. Did your parents that adopted you, did they blame themselves for that a- attempted suicide? Did they ever hold that grudge against you? N- no, I don't think I don't think they held a grudge against me. Um, I, and there may have been, you know, Parents always blame themselves. I mean, I'm not a parent. I'm I'm trying to put myself in my mom's shoes. Any anytime anything is going on with me, excuse me. I think my mom does say, you know, what could I have done better? But it had it had nothing to do with my parents. We the night that I did attempt um, that I did attempt it, uh, you know, I was in the middle of a fight with my parents, but it wasn't. It wasn't anything about them. I think maybe they did blame themselves. I don't know. I, I don't remember that we've ever really discussed that outside of, you know, outpatient therapy counseling. I want to go just a little deeper here, if you don't mind. Fair. Yeah. Um, before you attempted your suicide, what was your thoughts? You know, I really thought that all of what was going on um, I, I thought that the world would just be better. You know, I've got some... The world would be better without, without you? Without me. Um, I've got some abandonment issues from adoption, but it had nothing to do with my parents. It was, and I know and I recognize this now, that that stems from the whole adoption and the foster you know, process. Um, I think kids that get adopted after they're kind of able to at least piece some things together you know especially at four um I I think that there should have been we should have had some sort of therapy or counsel um but I mean I I don't blame any of the suicide on that I just it's a personal thing for me I think since my adoption and because we were moving from from you know where we were in the Philippines I still have very vague memories of the Philippines but they almost they're so it's so far gone that they almost feel like dreams, like when I recall them, um, like a vague dream, like when you wake up and you can't remember, you know, what you dreamed about. Um, so, so some very vague memories from there. But I think just from going from the Philippines to, you know, because I lived in an apartment with my biological father for about six months, from what my mom, you know, recall or tells me about that process. So from going to an apartment with him and then jumping into a foster home and then going to the Easter's house. At what age was that? I'm sorry. This is all before age four. Okay. So I want to ask you a follow-up to this. Okay. So why does apostolic kids feel like they don't have an outlet and they get pushed to the point of a suicide? Why Why do you feel like there's not an outlet 
Well, like uh, you had been on Facebook one time about how kids, they don't see you suffer. Right. And so they don't get, really get a chance to learn how to cope through things because parents have to shield them. They have to look like heroes. And, you know, they don't want their kids to see them stressing out over paying the bills and, and whether or not they're going to have a job whenever they wake up in the morning. And and, and I think it's an issue that, that spans, spans so far uh, beyond certainly our movement. It's it's a global movement. It's, it's an issue that's out there, uh, like you were making reference of the teen suicide rate. And so as Tony was asking, what are what are some of the things that would, would push someone, especially someone that was in your shoes from an apostolic background, to think, that the world would be better off without them and that, you know, they're, they were in a hopeless situation. You know, my, and uh, my fiancé Kip and my parents, they come, they come from generations that, you know, everything, and even it's still the same way now. Everything is hush-hush. You don't need to talk about this because it's going to ruin, you know, your platform or your ministry or, you know, this is too uncomfortable. We don't know how to handle it. Um, so it's it's just better that we just deal with this quietly, and and that's where I think that 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 mindset has been a disservice. Although I think that it, that it came from, you know, good motives. Of course, you know, if somebody seems unstable, now I don't mean like if there's an isolated situation in your life. I mean, you know. <clears throat> If you're going through the middle of divorce or you've lost a loved one, you know, those are circumstantial areas of depression, right? Um, and I'm not trying to, depression is depression, whether it's circumstantial or whether it's, you know, a chemist, a chemistry um, issue or hormonal issue or whatever. But, um, you know, in, so I'm just going to focus on situational dep- depression. I think, you know, when people have lost, you know, a spouse, whether to de- well, I guess you wouldn't be on a platform if you were divorced. Um, if you've lost a spouse, you know, to death or, or anyone in your family to death or, you know, and you're having suicidal thoughts because of that or, you know, whatever it is, you know, this this attitude of let's just deal with this quietly and not talk about it, that has not, that has proven to not be beneficial it's proven to not work it doesn't help anyone as a matter of fact after that blog that or post that I made that you said you were going to unfriend me for you know I had I had a girl message me and and I posted it I posted the comment I cut her name out I posted the comment on that thread and I said uh, you know I, I think I put some like crying emojis and this girl had said you know I can't give a whole lot of details but my someone in my family, so I'm sure she didn't want to say her dad or uncle or whatever or grandpa, um, someone in my family is going through depression, and you're absolutely right. We have been told to not talk about it because it would make us look bad. If someone would have talked with you about it, what would that have changed? It would have I, – I don't, I don't think that I would have gone through or done what, I, what I'd done. Because, you know, and um, I may talk about this later, but, you know, everyone has heroes in their lives. Everyone has someone that they look up to. And I think not that I'm trying to to bash the heroes or the people that I've looked up to, but I think my heroes have done a disservice or the people that I, you know, wanted to mold myself to be like. I think the disservice is that you have been too perfect or 
you know, you've you've put on this facade that if I do A, if I'm if I do A like they did, then I'll have B like they have. And if I have B like they have, then C will certainly follow along. And I, at this point in my life, when I was 17, I'm not a kid that made mistakes yet. You know, I'm still very naive. I'm still very innocent. You know, my innocence hasn't been lost at this point. I'm not jaded at this point. And so at this point in my life, I, I'm not understanding why life is taking this turn and maybe life is taking this turn because of something I did to deserve what I was going through. And so maybe if I just remove myself from the picture, because like I said, going back, and I don't think I got to finish that question, but going back to adoption, from adoption through the foster process, I have always and still feel like that you know, I don't. I just don't want to be a burden to anyone. I don't want to take up a whole lot of space. I don't want to, you know, if I'm in your way, I want to get out of people's way. I don't. And this has and this has been something that you know I've struggled and and talked to with Kip about. You know, you know, I've had a lot of insecurities about, you know, what what value or what worth is my life adding to not only the kingdom, but to the people around me. You know, because when I was a kid, I had someone tell me, and I know that this isn't true, but I had someone tell me, out of anger or whatever, but I almost latched onto it. I had someone say that the only reason why you were adopted was because, you know, your parents didn't want Gabe to be alone. Or, or, I don't know how it was worded, but basically, I wasn't adopted out of want. I was adopted to to pacify. And they just felt like it was a duty. Right. So, I, and since that point, I think that's where I have just felt like maybe my life is just a waste of space. And so I think that if I not, I don't think, I know that that's where I was when I was 17. Because I must have done something to deserve what I was going through, you know, the low that I felt I must have done something. I must be, and I felt that way even through my divorce, which we'll get to that too. There must have been something that I did to deserve what's going on right now and that I haven't I haven't sought repentance for it. So now I'm paying penance. Fair, you said that we don't talk about it. And you say that apostolics are supposed to be okay and supposed to perceive themselves as being happy. Let's talk about it. You said um, that there was no outlet. I want you to specifically right now talk to the child that is feeling alone and feeling like they're taking up somebody else's time, that they're not worthy of their time, and they're considering doing something crazy. What would you tell that person? Um, that that's the lie of the enemy. And, you know, and I'm, I'm naturally a pessimistic person. <laughs> Just if you leave me alone to my to my nature, right? I'm very pessimistic. And I think that has a lot to do with just being little. And, you know, when Gabe was, Gabe also went through this stuff with me too, right? Two people can go, can go through the same thing and come out. The same sun that melts wax, right? Hardens clay. Okay. So two people are going through the same thing and they're reacting to it much much differently than other people would. If you were to tell me that I was going to um, 
go through depression and attempt suicide and have a miscarriage. And in the same year that I have a miscarriage, I, my husband has chosen other people aside from me. I, when I was 17, I would have said, oh, that's it. I, that this is the point where I die. You know, I, I would have never thought that I would be here today. Number one, living. Number two, still in church. But, you know, it's, it's the lie of the enemy that he wants to make you feel like that God does, does in fact, make mistakes. When we've got so many verses in the Bible that step on my toes as a natural pessimist that call us to be positive and to not be to not sink into such depths of analytical thinking that we've talked ourselves into believing that we cannot contribute to the kingdom and you know at 17 years old i had no idea where my I still don't really know where my life is going, but I'm just kind of just floating in the Lord's will. God, wherever you want to take me, I'm I'm here because I've survived all of this, so I'm ready for whatever's next. Because I, I've gone through the worst case scenario that I could think of, all of the worst case scenarios that I can think of. I've gone through it, and I'm still here. So now I have something underneath my belt. And I want to encourage somebody out there who's, you know, 16, 17, 18, that thinks that your life um, cannot make a difference, that you cannot make an impact, um, that that is a lie from the pits of hell. And I'm, I'm here as living proof that if you, if you never forsake God, just like he's promised he's never going to forsake us, he'll take you further. Not that I've even gone super far. I mean, I'm just a little fish floating in this huge ocean of sharks, you know, myself, but um, he can still use the mess in your life as part of your message. And and the thing is, uh, to the person out there that's listening, that what you're going through, it's a temporary problem. Don't solve it with a permanent solution. Right. Because once suicide, once it's committed, there's no, it's the end of it. There's no coming back from I mean, that. so there, there are teens out there that they've killed themselves over boyfriend, girlfriends. We, you overcome that. Right. I mean, people go through all kinds of different things in their life. Like you've said, you've gone through some of the most traumatic things that a person can experience, and you're still here. You can go through it. You can make through it. You can get get an emotional healing through it. So, so solving that temporary, even though it's extremely painful when you're in the moment, that temporary problem does not deserve that permanent solution. No, and and like I said, you know, the people that I looked up to, they just di- they didn't talk about what they had went through. I had to be in rehab before I finally heard some stories from people when they were my age. And I'm like, I could have really used that about mm, a week ago. Let me tell you a, a relatable story for you. We, when we were with um, brother and sister Lumpkin in Little Rock a couple weeks ago, she told us that it wasn't, and she, she knew this this minister, a lady minister, who was it, Brian? Was it Nona Freeman maybe? Yes. Um, she, she told us, she's like, you know, I have, I have these issues. And she's like, well, I've known you for how many years and I've never known that about you. You could have told me that. I've could, I could have used that. Why are you not sharing that with me? Hello. And you know, there there's an issue that's that, that's just not being talked about 
in not just the apostolic faith, not just the Pentecostal faith, but as 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 a as a church as a whole, it's okay not to be okay. You know, yeah. whenever I gave whenever I gave you a phone call, Farah, about being on a podcast. At that time, we were a little bit smaller than we are now, and you told me that it was rapidly growing because you believe that people do have issues mm-hmm. that can, they can finally hear testimonies from. Why is it so um, quiet? Why do you think that? Um, how can I word this? How? Why do you think that people that are a figure in the church? want to keep down or keep that private what uh what sister freeman responded to sister lumpkin was the reason why i haven't talked about it is because i've just never been given a platform i think that's the great thing about social media is that you have your own platform and you know you know the the thing about social media is and i'll i'll wrap it back around to your question the thing about social media is is that you know if you read something on Facebook, you might every now and then find someone who's incredibly self-righteous and they'll say something like, you know, you really shouldn't put this on Facebook. Now, there are some things, right, that I'm just like, you know, I really don't want to hear about your baby mama drama, but I can keep scrolling. I don't have to sit there and take the time and say, you don't need to put this on Facebook. I mean, you told me when I called you, you post on Facebook, but you don't read on Facebook. I don't. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I I really just get on Facebook to post, check my notifications, and every now and then I'll see something, you know, because um, on my app, I don't, I have an Android because I'm Asian, but on my... <laughs> Uh, on my app, it'll take me to my newsfeed screen first, and whatever is on my newsfeed screen at the very top, that's typically the only thing I see. Otherwise, I don't want to know about baby mama drama. I disagree with the fact that people say you shouldn't post this on Facebook. Now, there are things that I agree that should probably not have been talked about, but again, that's my opinion against their opinion the 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 great thing about Facebook is that you it's like an it's like someone's opening up their house and you get to be invited to their house and see what they're all about and if you don't like what's going on in their house you have the opportunity to unfriend or walk out the door so that you'll never find me telling people this shouldn't be on Facebook because all it is to me is that I get to see who you are I get to learn who you are and if I want to decide that you're not somebody that's very stable, because there are some crazies out there, then I don't have to associate myself with and that's, you. That's specifically what we found out about the podcast is I may love a podcast episode and my wife may hate it. And she, or not oh. hate it, but she'd be like, I didn't really like that one. And then I'll get a text message from somebody saying, that really spoke to me. I'm so glad you all talked about that. And, you know, there's so many opportunities that we're given mm-hmm. that we don't take advantage of. Right. That can really help people out. Right. But it's, it's so quiet. Well, I mean, I know for me with a podcast, I feel like the reason why we've had, Tony, the, the, the marginal success we have is we found something that really isn't out there. Because we've talked about before, with and especially with a lot of people offline, I, I can't re- I can't recall any case we've talked about on the podcast. I think other than uh, the bonus episode that you and I did, where we talked about how all the other podcasts that are out there, there are a lot of you know leadership podcasts. There's Grow a lot your of church. You know, fair. You're not. They're not probably going to ask you on those podcasts. 
No. I, I mean, <laughs> we we have found something, I think, that, and I'm not just bragging on us, but I just don't feel like it's really out there is that podcast where someone on their way to work can get connected to that's talking about things like suicide. We've talked about abortion. We've talked about adoption. We've talked about all kinds of different things. And, yeah, sure, we've, we've talked about leadership. Sure, we've talked about personal growth. Growth. We've even talked about how to structure a sermon. But in all of that, what we're weaving in is it's not just about that. It's about the question that the person has that's out there. Absolutely. That they're struggling with anything, whether it be incompetence of feeling like they're not good enough of, in their ministry or they – feel like they don't have a place where they fit in. They don't feel like they've, they feel like they've been abandoned. All these things that people are feeling, we're trying to give an answer to that. Now, again, you may have to go through a few episodes to find the exact thing that you're going through. But we went through, by the time we hit 100 episodes, anything that any person can come in and say, hey, this is what I'm struggling with. We hope that someone can say, oh, well, you can go find the episode. It'll be episode whatever with Fairy Easter or this episode with Pastor Zane Isaacson or all these different things where there's someone on it that has practical experience in the Mm -hmm. situation that's gone through it. And so that's what we see we are is is we are trying to be that platform for the story that, that someone doesn't have the place. Either they don't have the pulpit or they don't have the notoriety, or whatever it may be, we want to have that opportunity that someone out there can get connected to this and get their story out to connect with somebody that's in need and hungry for that. Tony, what do you think? I, I want to I wrap it back around real quick. I have this question that's been burning in my mind, <laughs> and I was like, I really want to ask this question before we transition here. Farrah, when you woke up for the first time after you realized that your suicide had failed, how did everyone react? And on a second part of that question, what were the feelings when the attempt had failed? Uh, well, the feeling is humiliation. You know, when you decide to follow through with a suicide, you don't expect to survive. You're not most people let me just ask you i'm, I'm going to ask a question here i probably shouldn't ask what did you do to attempt suicide? No, that's what i was about to ask i um now mind you okay very naive i don't i don't know anything about drugs or anything there were four bottles of pills can't tell you what the can't tell you what the prescription was four bottles of pills laying on a counter and i i had a fight with my parents and it was at the breaking point we had a fight because i was trying to leave to go to church early and really, I was just going to just kind of be alone. I'm an introvert. <laughs> I know that when you... I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> I'm not so much introverted in that I'm I'm shy of people. I'm introverted in that I need some alone space to kind of recharge. Did it pop again? <laughs> okay. Um, so I was really going to the church to just have my alone time. Okay. So I wasn't allowed to go to church. Well... That's when the feelings of I'm trapped were, that's when it all kind of broke. So out of impulse, because I'm an impulsive person, out of impulse, I grabbed these bottles of pills and I downed them as if they were nothing. Now, my, my brother came in when I had finished in the middle of downing the fourth bottle. Um, and my brother and I were very close growing up. And if I told him or if he told me to keep it a secret, we were a vault with each other. We didn't 
we didn't tell each other secrets. So I'm in the car on my way to church and I'm vomiting up all of these pills and I'm, I'm vomiting so hard I can't talk. So, you know, mom and dad pull over on the side of the road and they're like, what's happening? And Gabe finally told them, he said, mom, mom, she, she swallowed some pills. So they took me to an emergency room and they had to transfer me to a hospital and they had to pump my stomach. Okay. So I, I took the wrong medicine. I only took medicine that made me extremely sick. Um, I didn't take any sleeping pills or any painkillers because that would have knocked me out. I only took something that, you know, just made me violently ill. So I was conscious. So let me let me talk to somebody who's attempting suicide. You, not attempting suicide, but considering suicide. Please don't consider it. I was conscious when they shoved the tubes up my nose and down my throat to, while I'm still throwing up in a bowl, mind you, to pump charcoal, because charcoal is an absorbent, to pump charcoal down uh, into my stomach because whatever medication would have stayed in there, um, even though I was throwing all of it up, there's still, you know, residual. So the charcoal was supposed to absorb all that. Um, I was awake when they had to take the tubes out. These are not comfortable things to go through. Um, I was conscious when my pastor, Terry Black, came to visit me, and I had to explain myself. (laughs) Um, You don't prepare to face anyone because you don't expect to fail, you know? So now this reality, you know, I'm I'm going, I'm admitted to um, a suicide, not suicide, I'm I'm admitted to a, a rehab center you know, and they put me in the wrong wing at first. I was in the wing where there was some seriously, you know, schizophrenic people. That enough was traumatic for me because I'm like, okay, I'm not crazy. I'm just, I'm just emotional and I was impulsive and I didn't know how to handle it. I'm in the wrong wing. Thankfully, after 48 hours or so, they moved me to the wing with, you know, kids my age um, that were also going through had survived suicide attempts um you know and even in that little uh rehab center there was an opportunity to be a light we had a group discussion and I I wasn't in inpatient therapy for very long you know because I I snapped out of it real quick whereas a lot of these kids were really going through some tough situations like how many um, there was about 15 of us. I, I was over here just a moment ago whenever you talked about how they switched you over to the wings where you were in with young people. The fact that they had to have a wing for it, that they had to have a class that was that many, peop- that many people that had attempted. I mean, I just, you know, shaking my head that, that there's that many people out there. That's just in one facility, Brian. Yeah, yeah. that was just one facility. And even that wing, I say wing because it was mm-hmm. just a little segregated, you know, it was just a hall of a few rooms. It wasn't anything as big as the people with, like, severe, like, mental issues, right? Um, even in that little uh, group that I was in, there was an opportunity to be a light. You know, um, there, there was a question that was posed in that group and it said who should not be here and everyone 
pointed at me and said, we don't know why she's here. <laughs> you know, her life is nothing compared to ours. And they didn't mean it in any way. It's just, you know, I said, look, I, I don't have, I'm just like you guys. I didn't have anyone to talk to. I don't know how to handle this. I'm feeling the same things you're feeling. It's just that what led me to this point was a different route than yours. I've never been, you know, I didn't go through what a friend that I'd made there. I didn't go through her father molesting her every night. You know, I don't know how she survived that. I don't know how she was. And she had downed like two bottles of painkillers and somehow she's alive. So I had the opportunity to witness to these people and be a light to them. And there was another question posed, you know, who, something about, and I can't remember exactly, but basically something about if you were on a, a raft or by yourself, who in this group would you want with you? And they all pointed to me. So with you having a very different background than they had, when, when you made this attempt, was it something you had been contemplating for some time? Or was it a spur of the moment? Because I'm sure that the, the the girl who was molested for all that time, that's something probably was right. on their mind often. W- again, was it with you just kind of a, you saw it and you said it's just things would be better off this way? Or? Yeah, it was very, um, it was very impulsive. I mean, I, I had, I, I told God, you know, I, I just want to die, you know, but I hadn't. There was no plan. There was no thought process. It was, it was just impulsive. I saw pills. I thought, okay, well, if I could just die in my sleep, that would be an easy way, right? So, um, yeah, it was. It wasn't anything that was thought out, and and that can't be said about a lot of people that really do, you know, a- attempt it. I want to ask you a very, 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 very deep question, but you're the person to answer it. What does the church need to know about mental health? Uh, depression um, and mental health, it, it can be something you're naturally born susceptible to. Like I said, you know, maybe there's some chemistry imbalance um, or, it, or it could be situational. But, you know, my, like I said, my depression has always been situational. Uh, I'm a natural pessimist, so like I said, so sometimes I I can talk myself into a depression just by overthinking and preparing for worst case scenario. So I really think that people in the church need to stop telling people to one, not talk about it, and two, to just quote unquote pray about it. And I'm putting quotations around that because I, I do believe in the power of prayer. If that's the only advice, though, that we're giving or using as some sort of fallback, you really need a big sign in your head that says, I'm an incompetent life coach. Because you either clearly don't care or you just don't have any life experience to give any sort of counsel based on such a flippant response. You know, if, if you don't have any resources, I think it's okay to say, you know, if I was in your shoes I wouldn't know what I would do but here are some biblical here are some things that that I want to remind you of that the Bible says you know we've got all these positive scriptures in the Bible you know and um I I believe in an all-powerful miracle working God I also believe that God gave man the knowledge to 
knowledge to combat depression, not only spiritually, but physically as well. He didn't give us the revelation of hygiene or self-care just for us to sit on, you know, a log and expect him to spoon feed us. You know, uh, we have the understanding that if, that if we stop brushing our teeth, eventually we're going to just look like we sit around chewing on pollen. You know, God's not going to sit there and run that toothbrush over our teeth. We need to apply the revelation in our lives. So in saying that, I don't think that you can do one without the other. If you pray over your depression, you also need to find physical outlets um, to expel all of the toxins in your body that typically accompanies with depression. If you're taking medication or outside therapy, you'd be foolish to neglect your spiritual life as well. You know, there's a quote that says, if you don't make time for your wellness, you will be forced to make time for your illness. And quite honestly, if I think about it, like I said, I don't think I picked, I don't think I picked the best people to look up to. Um, you know, previous generations have been hush-hush about things, and it's proven that those methods were stupid, and it has not benefited the kingdom because it has failed to minister to the sheep in the kingdom. None of my heroes ever exposed any amount of humanity. Their lives told me, again, that if, that if they did A, B would happen, and then all of that would follow. But, you know, they let me falsely believe that I had to be good enough to have a good life or a ministry. But in my time of need, I had nothing and I had no one to reference because everyone I knew or looked up to was perfect. Therefore, they failed me by letting me believe that what I was going through, that the hard times I was going through was because I must have failed. You know, we seek forgiveness about things that we did, but we often forget to repent for the sins of omission about the things we did not do. Too many of us, to you listening to this podcast right now, have withheld your testimony out of pride. Fear might be, it might be a different motive, but when you refuse to share what God has brought you through, you're essentially withholding the strength and hope that would have been given to someone in your circle of influence because we all have it, all because you cared more about saving face than you did about acknowledging his saving grace. Looking back, I, I could be really mad at the people in my life during my teenage years who claimed that, you know, that they were someone that merited having some sort of platform because none of them were ex the examples I needed. They were just the examples of what was expected. So I just think that it's time that we just drop the facades. I'm not really interested that you've stood with the greats if you've never sat down with the broken because in a world full of sheeps, it's time for us to be the sheepdog. I'm not impressed with people who run in circles. No. Brian. Because the Israelites, they rolled in circles for 40 years. They didn't get anywhere. No. They roamed the yeah. desert in circles. Uh, Tony, you really want to say something on, the, on this? <laughs> I do. Go ahead. So <laughs> let, me, let me just say that me and Brian have both listened to a sermon, and it's sad that it's not from an apostolic preacher. But we've heard this guy, um, well-known preacher, not associated with anything, United Pentecostal at all. But he made this statement that, don't proclaim that you're perfect because it doesn't encourage me. It intimidates no. me. Yes. You said no questions off limits. Nope. Okay. We'll see. <laughs> so, so to a, the teenager, going back to the teenager that's going through all the things they're going through that has contemplated taking their own life. If they take their life, they leave behind their family. Right. What was it like the neck the first time after you came through to came to that you were alone with your mom i mean that's the that's the part that we don't account for i didn't count the cost right i thought okay maybe my family will be sad but 
I'm telling I'm t- I'm letting myself believe that things will be better. Instead, I did not I did not think that my that my parents, that my family would probably live the rest of their life blaming themselves. You know, it was out of left field for everyone. You know, you know, people outside of your family, they don't they don't really know you like you are. So it's funny. I I get it all the time. You know, you don't you're not an introvert. I really am. I really am naturally very melancholy, very pessimistic. So this was out of left field for a lot of people in my church. Uh, It was a big shock to them. Of course, you know, my mom and I are best friends. So she knew that I was really, you know, naturally prone to uh, to depression. But um, but that was more and I don't want to say depression because, like I said, the things I was going through, the the times of depression were very situational. This isn't something that I deal with on a daily, weekly, monthly, even yearly basis. Right. Um, So. I think there was only one girl in my youth group that, you know, was like, oh, well, she just kind of did it for a, attention. But I, I didn't really expect to survive that to get attention. You know, um, I did not I did not understand that had I been, quote unquote, successful in this suicide, I did not I did not count the cost of what it would do to the people behind me. And suicide is the most selfish sin because there's no there's no coming back from it. And I feel for the minister and his family of the wife that attempted suicide in our uh, in our denomination congregation, whatever you want to call it, um, because I I don't I think she was so she was so. I don't even know. I don't. I don't know her that well, but something. Something had to drive you to that point, and I can't imagine what it's like to be, to have a, you know, quote unquote platform, and tell and have people around you tell you that, you know, you, you probably shouldn't talk about this. It's it's going to ruin your husband's ministry. It's it's going to be bad for your family. You know, and I think that if we had opened up some sort of avenue, if we had if we had all given each other the opportunity to be open about what we struggle with, we wouldn't have seen that happen. And going back to, you know, we were talking about social media. That is the great thing about social media is that you have a platform now. You have the opportunity that back in even 10, 20 years ago, people that would have never had an audience had anyone listen to them I'm not I'm not even talking about preachers I'm talking about we can use our social media as a form of ministry and now these people have a platform like podcasts such as this to have an opportunity where you know you're you're not going to silence me anymore you know I this is what God's brought me through and I'm not going to shut up just because it makes you uncomfortable you know, I, this is, if we can't talk about the goodness of God without talking about the messy parts. 
Because again, that's living in that same mindset that let's only talk about the sunshine and roses. Let's not let's not ruffle any feathers. You know, anybody that has ever made a change, not only in UPC, but in America as a whole, they had people telling them, you shouldn't do that. That's going to ruffle a lot of feathers. But had we not had people stand up against, you know, racism or whatever, the Civil War, all that was an uncomfortable thing, right? So, if we're just if we're refraining from talking about things that we're going through just because it's going to upset someone else well that's the most idiotic thing i've ever heard in my life he brought you he brought you to this and through this not to shut up but so that somebody who's trailing behind you needs some sort of if they can't even see the light at the end of the tunnel at least if we're feeling our way through that dark tunnel we've got a hand of somebody that has gone on before us to at least get us to an exit you know I can't there's no way that I'm going to be able to to look back on that part of my life and not have compassion towards the people that are going through this and if anything Anything that we go through, if compassion for other people, if a change on how we view divorce and suicide comes out of that, that's what, that was the whole point then. Sometimes we go through things so that we can just get a different perception, a different perspective of something that we probably would have been of, been judgmental of before. Yeah, yeah we will we will do anything to save a sinner. We'll change the way we talk. We'll change the way we decorate our platform. We'll change um, the, the methods of outreach. We'll sacrifice our time for home Bible studies. We'll do anything to reach a, a sinner. But this subject we're talking about is reaching us. Right. We'll do all these things to save the lost, but what about ourselves? We don't do anything to maintain the people that are here. We have to maintain. So what's the solution? Well, the solution, you know, we're talking about it in a small way. I think it is the platform. We have to give a voice to it, in my personal opinion. That's why I think it's important to have this conversation, to give a voice to it. We don't change who we are. No. We don't compromise who we are to save the lost. We shouldn't say compromise ourselves to save ourselves. We just had to find the way it is to connect people to, hey, you're not alone, which right. is my biggest passion right now going on, is telling people you you don't have to face what you're facing alone. I've been there. We mm-hmm. can get through this together. Let's link arm in arm. Let's let's all come together in this let's, and quit being hush-hush and being putting the mask on. We had a friend um, of the podcast who recently sent us a, a, a audio clip of a sermon he preached entitled Taking the Mask Off. That's right. And, and conversations like this are what inspired him to preach that to his church, where he became very open to this church of things that he had struggled with in order to connect with people. I don't think it needs to be something. And the only reason why I think that people are quiet about it is is I think there is a, a perception that I have the Holy Ghost, mm-hmm. therefore I should not think a depressed thought. And if I voice that, yes, I have the Holy Ghost, but I go through depression, it's a way of minimizing the message that we are promoting, that when you receive the Holy Ghost, you're going to get saved. It's true, but Mm -hmm. there are still some things you've got to get over. Because 
What did Jesus say about salvation? John chapter number 3. It was a new birth. You are born. That is the start of your journey. That does not solve every issue you are going to ever have, being born again of water and spirit. But you're going to start a path where there is recovery for your old life because it can be buried and put behind you. You can move forward. And so being all quiet and saying, well, maybe they don't really have the Holy Ghost that they're still struggling the way they're struggling. Surely, I mean, I've heard some people, and I'm about to get in some weeds, I've heard people preach some crazy stuff about how, well, I know that person didn't really get the Holy Ghost because when I got the Holy Ghost, I I quit the football team. I quit. I quit it cold turkey. Yeah, I mean they 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 do they say all these different things. Look, guys, when you get done praying in that altar, it's still you, but you're not alone anymore. Mm-hmm. You've got the Holy Ghost. You've got God with you, living inside you. It's still you walking away from that altar, you're but you're not alone. Flesh. You're still going to fail and make mistakes. So is the Holy Ghost any less real just because we're still making mistakes? No. Right. I don't I don't base someone's Holy Ghost meter. I don't know what really to name it because I know people that have never made public mistakes. But I know that a judgmental, self-righteous, catty gossiping spirit is not of the Holy Ghost either. So to tell me that because I have depression or suicidal thoughts or because I'm now divorced, to tell me that I'm not good enough or that I I don't have a right. Well, it's just because you're a worse sinner than I am. Right. And and that's what it is. We are judging ourselves amongst ourselves. All I did was lie today. Yeah, yeah, I don't don't deal with that. My sins aren't as bad as your sins. Mm Mm-hmm. I just sin differently than you do. <laughs> and that's all it really is. Yeah. Oh, my word. It's, a, it's all sin. Massive misconception. That's like, uh, man, I, I hate that we keep talking about prior episodes, but just like Brother Lumpkin said, it don't, don't matter. Don't classify your sin as any better than mine. Sin is sin, and it's all addictive. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. Every bit of it. Farrah, let me ask you something. Is spirituality and mental health connected in any way? Oh, absolutely. Um Spiritual. I thought we went over that question. Um, sorry, <laughs> you can cut this out. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I, like I said before, um, I don't think you can have one without the other. I think if you're if you're going to um, if you're going to seek some sort of like secular, and I say secular loosely, but I'm, I'm talking about outside of a church wall. You know, if you're going to seek that neglecting your spiritual life is a is a is a big no-no first of all neglecting it neglecting it before you have depression isn't something that isn't something that i advise but um but i like i said i don't think just praying about it is the all is the all-inclusive you know care package for you know or or um is the z-pack for your depression yeah you know, it's not going to be a quick fix. Um, I think there's some things, subjects like that, we need to really understand what the purpose of it is. Like, I know a lot of people, they teach fasting in that it's a way of um, you're going on a hunger strike against God for to get whatever you want. Cut that out. I don't, no, I'm not on, on that. I'm not in on that. 
I'm not going on no hunger strike to force God's hands on anything. I'm going no. on a hunger strike for myself to to make my flesh understand and that's more the, about me. That's the purpose right. of fasting. It isn't that I'm going to starve myself until God gives me what I yeah, want. Yeah, I'm out on that. God, you're going to do this or I'm not going to eat. <laughs> and you know what? Tell me that's, how that works for that's you. That's so funny because that is the idea of fasting that's, that's, that we've that, grown up with. That, and that's, that's not a, what it's for. That's a diet. Let me know how your weight loss goes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, let's shift gears here a little bit. We've we've talked quite a bit about early early on, Farah, with you. Um, you you're out of rehab. You've graduated high school. You decide to go to Bible college. You choose Indiana Bible College. Tell us a little bit about your um, life as a college student. Uh, well, you know, after uh, after that attempt life pretty much went back to normal um i honestly i didn't really open up about my suicide until even just even just a few years ago i'm talking about like within the last 10 years um graduated high school the following semester i got a full ride scholarship to a local college for music um but i gave that up to go to ibc now mind you i didn't go to ibc for the best motives um then what was it I used IBC as a way to run away from my problems, you know, run away from, you know, the guy that I shouldn't have been involved with that was still there at my home church um, from, you know, I, I hate to say it, but let me just word it this way. Someone in ministry that was that was over my that was over my direct, uh, I guess, age group. Um I wasn't connecting with them. So I used IBC as a way to uh, run away from my problems. Um, and I think Bible college, let me just make a little plug here. Bible college specifically, Bible college is uh, a make or break opportunity. Um, I was planning on walking away from UPC after graduation. I just, not only was I bitter about this this guy that I dated, you know, that was very dogmatic. Um, you know, I was dealing with this person in leadership that was also very dogmatic. And I just couldn't stomach ministering alongside some of the two-faced people that reflected that previous generation, too. Um, and, and just for the record, that percentage in college was quite low. Just so you know, it was, it was, but sometimes the small percentage is the popular ones, you know. And so I, I just didn't want anything to do with UPC or its people because, you know, I, when you're, when you're in any Bible college, I'm not talking about IBC because IBC ended up being a very, um, important part in my life and it's the reason why I stayed in church it was the re it was the reason that I ran away from my problems but it ended up being the very reason why I stayed and mainstreamed you in a way yeah because you were on praise and oh well I didn't mean that but <laughs> well I'm, I'm just saying that was one of the benefits of it even if that wasn't the one you were but you referring know even to. that to me that was just kind of a check off you know so when I was adopted my oldest sister Allison was going to IBC. It was just kind of like a checkoff list. Like I'm doing this. I'm keeping. That's what apostolics do. Right. <laughs> I'm keeping this in my family. I'm. It's. It's the one. It's my last. Um, what do you call it? Last stand. I guess. The last hoorah. The last hoorah. Yeah. What's the biggest misconception about Bible college? 
that it's that it's perfect <laughs> and that it's just glamour well that it's glamorized but it really really behind the scenes you get a small taste of church politics um, when you're when your naive ideas of people who claim to have the Holy Ghost get shattered you know at, at that point you don't want anything to do with it um, and I think from opportunities you know like like praise that's what that's what that's what most people went to IBC for. If music, you were yeah. if you were involved in music, you know, and that's look, Brother Mooney, who's um, pastor at Calvary Church. There, I love him, love their family. You know, he said he said something one time, and I thought it was I thought it was great. He said, "There's no wrong reason to come to Bible college. If you want to come here for an education, or you know, to get a taste of what home missions or starting a church is like, that's great. That's what you tell people, right? I want to go because I want to There's be, this gravitational pull from yeah, God in my I life. I have a calling on my life. <laughs> but he said, if you're coming here to find a spouse, that's not a bad reason either, you know. Or if you're coming here because, you know, and he spoke to me, he said, if you're coming here because you're running away from, he didn't use those words, but essentially if you're coming here running away from, uh, something, you know, basically what he was trying to say is that here's, here's some fertile ground and depending on how you water it is going to depend on how you grow. Right. And so, um, out of, out of all of that, you know, being bitter for, you know, the first three and a half years that I was there, not wanting to be part of this, you know, okay, so I made praise my senior year. Great, that's check off list. I did that for my mom and now I'm I'm about to peace out. I've got one more semester left and I'm not having anything to do with these people or any or anybody like them. But here I am, all because God got a hold of me, all because he helped me realize that I don't have to grow up to be like the people that I resented, but I could grow up and prove that not everyone is like them, you know. I don't I don't know that anything as far as like singing was really the benefit out of going to Bible college. I think God met me so many times at Bible college and he proved himself to me that by the end of my time there I had an understanding, okay God, my life is in your hands. And so whatever happens from this point, I'm not going to leave. I just I need you to always make yourself real to me. And he always has. So if we were to uh, talk to somebody that went to college with you that really doesn't know you now, what, are the, what would they say about you? Oh, man. <laughs> I can't answer that. I don't know. It, I guess it depends on who you were. I mean, I had. Like, I, like and the reason why I'm asking is I'm, I'm just wondering, were you kind of putting on a front through Bible college or were you real about, hey, I'm just here buying time. Until I want to add to that, I, Brian. I, I peace out. Do you, do you regret? wasting your first three and a half years of Bible college? No, I don't think it was a waste. Because like I said, um, any time I want, I could have very easily not come back, right, every semester. But I, I had my, I had enough breakthroughs that got me from one point to another. Now, as far as, you know, what people would say about me, um, I, I didn't really make it public my plans uh, really in the back of my mind I was hoping that I would be proven wrong I, I was hoping that God would 
change would change me because I know I can't change anybody else, right? I'm self-aware enough to know that that it starts with me. It starts with my attitude, starts with my perception, um, and it starts with my own self-motivation. But, um, you know, I, I had a few people there that I didn't get along with, but for the majority of the school, you know, I was friends with everyone. And I love that, you know, I, I love that my first three years of college, I just got to be friends with people and I got to go to their house on the weekends and I've made a lot of great memories at IBC but you know nobody knew what was going on when I closed the door to my bedroom you know nobody knew my plans and my secret frustrations and as a matter of fact I finally got close to um, somebody on staff that she and I our personalities are polar opposite and our thought processes are polar opposite. Now she's coming from a different generation and a different upbringing than I did. So my frustrations with her and her frustrations with mine were just because we were two different people. And, you know, we finally sat down and had a real heart-to-heart talk. And while at the time I probably was resentful of that, resented that, you know, I had been cornered by somebody that I didn't really care for. You know, I got to open up with her and say, you know, the way that you do things is not how I would do things. And and I don't want to be like you when I grow up, you know. And I, I, if God calls me to anything, this is not how I would run it, you know. And, and she let me, she allowed me to be that open with her. And she took that in stride you know and and even we're still friends even now but you know that helped me understand that you're going to run into people that are in some sort of leadership or ministry opportunity and if and if we can just sit down and get to know each other and talk through and talk about how we grew up talk about what we've gone through it doesn't mean that I'm always going to agree with how you do things but I can at least unite with you I can at least be a united front with you because at the core we're all if we're all claiming to be UBC at the core we all know what we believe right we're all on the same team it's just understanding that people have different personalities and perspectives and ways and methods of going about things and I think that was a really um, eye-opening thing for me that somebody in a leadership authority position would have taken that time to invest in me. And I, at that point, I think that's where things started changing for my life for the better, um, wh- where that I, I was considering, okay, God, whatever you want to do, I'm, o- I'm open to it. You know, you gave me this opportunity to talk with somebody that I've uh, up until this point not at all respected. And now I'm walking away from this conversation, gaining not only respect for this person, but I'm gaining a friend even though we disagree on just about everything. So Bible college is over. We've mm-hmm. graduated Bible college. Now we're going to get real deep. We're okay. going to we're going to use the word that you're not supposed to talk about. We're going to say the D word. Oh, man. You have talked multiple times about you're divorced. Yeah. And you can't be divorced if you weren't married. Bridge that <laughs> gap for us. So, um <laughs> So my divorce, or well, not my divorce, I, I met him um, 
through a mutual friend, but he was dating somebody that I went to school with and traveled and sang with. Um, so when, you know, they, when the, that relationship fizzled out, um, it was, I think that fizzled out the last semester of my freshman year. So it was music fest of that following year. So I think around April, um, you know, he had messaged or had somewhere got somehow got my number and started messaging me. Um, so we had talked, uh, to my last, I don't, we weren't even really dating. Even by the time I graduated, it was just kind of like, we're just getting to know each other, you know, just kind of talked. And um, I went on praise tour and, uh, and, and the girl that he had dated was on praise tour with us. So that caused a lot of friction, a lot of animosity. Um, just for the record, we're friends now. So I don't, I don't want anyone to think that I'm trying to talk bad about her. Um, and then after after praise tour was over because it was a it was a two week long tour, um, I uh, went up to Michigan to see him and to kind of meet his family and uh, we had a mutual friend that I'd graduated I'd actually graduated at IBC with, and you know I'd asked around I asked her and her family which her dad was the music minister at the church that he was at and you know he comes from uh, a split home. Um, so this man, the music minister, was kind of his, not only his best friend, but his, his father figure. Um, so, you know, I got to meet the people at his church, got to ask around who he was, what he was like. I'm getting all the green lights from people, right? So previous to me dating this, this guy, I had been single for um, five years at this time. And the whole five years thing, the whole five years being single has also, <laughs> I before Kip, I had been single for five years as well. So You said Kip a couple of times. That's her fiance That's now. my fiance, right. I got you, Kip. I don't, I don't say the other guy's name. Um, so anyway, um, sorry, I'm totally random, bouncing off the walls, going all over the place. Um, uh, we dated, I think we were together about a year and a half before we got married. And uh, I... Listen, me deciding to marry this person was not, you know, I've mentioned that I'm analytical, I'm an overthinker, I've gotten the green lights from everyone that knows him, his pastor, his best friends, this this mutual friend of mine that, you know, is his father figure, I'm getting the green light from my pastor, you know, my family likes him and is okay with it. Uh, like I said, I never want to make a life decision without having the blessing from the people in my life that are important. So this decision to marry this guy wasn't without screening him, vetting him through everyone that I loved and respected. Okay. When we got together and we discussed how are we going to raise our kids? What, um, you know, what are we going to do about finances and income? You know, we'd mapped out our values, our principles, how we were going to do things, all of those things aligned, right? You know, we were both, we're not messy people. You know, we, we kept a clean house. You know, it was just everything that could have been in place, pretty much a lot, it fell in place, right? And um, so, and I'd always been told, you know, you really need to have a fight with someone so that you can figure out how they fight 
Well, and we did, we'd had some disagreements, and I, I, I just kind of, you know, excused it as, well, he's 14 hours from me. We're both frustrated because we can only see each other every three months, you know, and it, our, our fights resolved after, it, it resolved positively. There was no name calling. There was no verbal abuse, right? It was just, just frustration and you know, we got over it and, and we dealt with it. So, okay. So that was another check on my list. Okay. So we fight like adults. We fight civilly. Okay. So I get married to him. I get married to him. And on my wedding, not the wedding night, cause we had stayed in a hotel in Memphis. We t- we'd taken a cruise, um, like a seven day cruise. First of all, I'd never been on a cruise. So I was sick the entire time. <laughs> so add on top of that, I'm discovering second day of my marriage, this huge mistake that I've made. Cause now we're in the middle of the ocean. There's no, there's no cell phone. There's no way for me to reach anyone. We're in the middle of the ocean. And he has told me how it's going to be that he's going to lay down the law and that I'm going to say yes and submit to everything that he says. We're not talking submission like the Bible, you know, d- defines. Okay, his his idea of submission was that I'm always a yes man, that I'm enslaved to his decisions and what he has called our family to do. Well, I disagreed with that perspective, and I said, well, you've married the wrong woman because I'm not a doormat. So I have a terrible honeymoon, um, get back home, and I'm not going to tell anyone that I've made this this poor choice because I'm trying to figure out logically in my head how I've made this poor choice. I've gotten the green light from everyone. At that point, I was like, okay, he's just being a guy because any guy that I dated in the UPC always loved to slam submission down a woman's throat anyway. So I'm like, all right, he's just being a typical guy. I'm not saying y'all are like that. You're both looking at each other like. <laughs> I'm just saying my experiences with guys that I've dated in church. Um, you know, I thought I thought we're just in our 20s now, and he's really immature about this about this topic or whatever or this word. So I'm just gonna give it a few years. Maybe somebody will come into his life, and you know, because he didn't he didn't have a he didn't have a healthy home life to figure out how a man should treat a woman, a woman, right? He's he, I didn't find out until after I got married to him that he, that there's a history of violence in his family. There's a history of violence with his dad. There's a history of violence with his grandpa. I don't know how far back it goes, but I knew about those two. But again, that wasn't until after I got married to him. And, you know, I, I know I've made this mistake, but I'm like, I, I can either make this the worst relationship or this is, this is what I'm, this is the card I'm dealt with. How, what can I do to make this as livable as possible? I'm, I'm over here. I know. I'm You're smiling t- because there are a lot of, oh, let me rephrase this. I just wonder how many young married apostolic people are have struggled with exactly what you're talking about 
I really that's a that's an answer I really want to know because like you just said growing up in the old church we are women are expected to do one thing and men another that's not the society we live in today so when that was brought before you you said it was 2 days when you realized this is a mistake how long was it until you started acting on you realizing it was a mistake and I will point out, I'm certainly not that way. Melissa's in the room. Melissa, tell the folks I'm not that way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I don't get that from them. Um, I don't think nobody would ever admit that. Okay, so I'm, I'm kind of a different, a different personality. I was waiting for someone to ask me if everything was okay. Mm. But I'm I'm 14 hours from home. Right now, if they had asked you, "Is everything okay?" Would you have said, "Oh yeah, everything's fine," or would you have honestly said, "No, I, I needed, back. I needed." You needed that outlet. Would anybody in the world? Now, let me just say that I did reach out to people in that church. He would, he would leave me at the church, and I would just have to find a way home. There's no way. There's no way to just. You can't lie about that, you know. And I couldn't. Ref, there's no way to refute you know, what has happened. <laughs> I mean, I have to ask people for a ride for a ride home. It only happened one or two times, but I'd have to ask people for a ride home. Well, where is he at? Well, well, he left me. He just left me here. And towards the end, I did, I did finally break down and have a conversation with the pastor's wife and it was just still just a general, just well, let's we'll just pray, you know. We'll just hopefully everything's okay. There was nothing. There was no. I didn't get any help from the leadership there. Um, I want to interject here real quick. You've said it earlier, and I, I kept my mouth shut, and you said it again just now. One of the biggest cop-outs when we go for advice is pray about it. Instead of just being... Because there's times that I've prayed, and I I know me and Brian's talked, that we feel that our prayers, they're not working. I'm in a place right now where prayer ain't doing nothing for me, Um, and I'm Holy Ghost filled. I shouldn't talk like that. It's the truth. Be honest with yourself. It's the truth. You 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 ask for specific things and you pray about um, all these different avenues you're on and you wait for an answer that don't come. I think that that is something that needs to be addressed. That God would I forget who it was, but that God would lay your name on an intercessor's heart at that time because praying about it isn't always the answer. Whenever you've tried that. Well, I think like that the way that it comes to prayer, um, a lot of times we feel like it's not doing anything, um, but I think it's kind of like snow. I think, in fact, even the Bible talks about it, how it layers on, and it takes a little bit of heat until the water's there. It's not just like rain. And so there's, I mean, there there is always a benefit to prayer. Always. Right. We're not saying prayer is pointless. No. And even whenever you feel like it's not doing anything directly for you, it is doing something. It's just layering on. And sometimes it takes a little bit of time for that answer to come, and it doesn't come on our timeline. But to say that 
the only solution to some of these problems is, well, pray about it. I, I, I don't think that that is the only way to get an answer. Right. It's, it's, it's a great way to communicate with God, but what happens when you're in a situation where you're being abandoned by somebody? I mean, can you wait 10 years for that answer? And I'm telling you, when I when I went to that pastor's wife, it was it wasn't even it wasn't even a month before everything unraveled. Um, you, you know, and and it, she look, she meant well. Okay, I'm not I'm not trying to dog her out. It's just sometimes I think they always mean well. They they do, but it. I just think it's okay to not be so arrogant and just say, I have never been through this. I don't know what what resource to point you, what direction to point you in. I'm going to pray with you that we can find a way to to get some sort of answers. Okay, but, you know, maybe encourage them to get to see a therapist, you know, I don't know. Uh, but in this case, this was, this, my marriage was on the line. And I, I'm coming to this pastor's wife and I'm saying, this is what's happening in my marriage. I, for three years, have been quiet. And I know that you guys have seen us fight, you know, because I'm I'm not somebody that just, I wear my emotions on my sleeve, you know. I, I don't, um, he always wanted to save face and I, I I'm just not a great actress I can't I can't walk around with a mask or a facade um, now my intention was to protect our relationship because if he w- if if I'm looking forward to a 50-year anniversary I'm wanting to protect this relationship which included wanting to protect him because, you know, you hear stories all the time about people's first few years of marriage and, you know, th- they've made some mistakes and they've learned from those mistakes and how not to respond or react in those ways. So that's that's really the perspective um, that I wanted to look back and say, okay, we didn't do some things right when we fought about this here. So why would I, with the intent that my marriage was going to stay intact, why would I throw my husband under the bus? That was never my intention when I wanted to reach out to people. I'm, I'm seeking because I'm, I'm so desperate that I'm now exposing things in our marriage to you as my shepherd's wife, and I need help. And all you can tell me is that you hope things get better. And... And so less than a month later, when things finally are bad, when I am forced out of my home because he says he doesn't want me there anymore, you know, I cannot be blamed, and I was blamed, that I didn't reach out to them. But but in, in my mind, I, I did reach out to you. I didn't hear, not only did I not hear from my husband um, for a, a total of maybe we were separated six months before I confronted him for a total of all together um, uh, five months that I didn't hear from him. 
in this course of this separation, I also didn't hear from my supposed pastor and his wife. Nobody reached out and called me and checked on me. And, and I came to you. I asked you, what can I do? My, my marriage is, is on the fringe. I'm, I'm losing. I'm losing a battle. And this is, this is the, the character that I'm living with. This is, the, this is the human I'm living with. And I'm not responding right because I'm being done wrong and I'm trying to defend myself. And you have no other resource to give me except, well, we, we hope it gets better. That's it? That's all you can offer me? So what then am I supposed to do? And I was, I was blamed, excuse me, mouth is dry. I was blamed, you know, for not reaching out to them. And I, I don't know, maybe this is a different perspective. I've never grown up in a preacher's home, but I, I didn't know that I had a shepherd because nobody was calling or reaching out to me when I was home in Memphis back with my family and Memphis at that time was had gone through a split of their own you know so I didn't I didn't even have my pastor anymore to lean on all I had was my family and thankfully because of the connections through Mark Condon um, years prior before I even um, got married he connected me with Sharon McKee we toured and and sang together Um, it was Mark Condon and Shara that I reached out to. And in Memphis, it was Philip Flowers that I counseled with because everybody that was familiar, everybody that I loved and respected was no longer in the picture. So I had to go to outside resources because the resource I came from told me, all they told me was, we just hope it gets better. And I heard nothing from them. So thankfully, when I revealed that to the McKees, immediately they said, you have a safe place here. And, and Mark Condon did too. You, you can come here. Um, the McKees offered me a job. They, had, they have a private school at POK. So that was, that was some source of income um, for me to have because, you know, I had to walk away from my job. And things had gotten so bad in my relationship that I, I, I told my job, I said, listen, my marriage is on the line and I can't focus on work and try to salvage this at the same time. So I had to quit my job. Um, and so the night that the night that he threw me out of my home, I, I told him previously in a fight, you know, I, I said, if you ever, if I ever leave, if I ever leave this house, I'm not coming back. And I've kept my word. But I never, I didn't have the opportunity to go back because he never asked me back. So when all of this came out, when there was a confrontation, when there was a meeting, and my mother was there, and that pastor and his wife were there, and he was sitting across from me, and his best friend slash father figure and his wife were there, you know, I've I've had to, I had to, um, bring proof that that what was going on was in fact going on because, you know, Pastor McKee had said you need to have irrefutable proof because they're they're going to deny they're going to deny that they're going to say that that's not enough proof and it's so sad it's so sad that you can have you can have, you can build this reputation for yourself you can prove 
that you are of a different caliber and of better character than compared to somebody else, you know, or you can prove your, your character. This isn't coming out right. I'm just saying you can live your whole life and people know, okay, this is, this is a man or this is a woman of their word. They're not a liar, you know, and still you can have physical proof and people will still call you a liar. People will still downplay your testimony and whatever proof you have. So I had to have further proof, you know, further proof that was irrefutable, even compared to the proof I already had. I had to go in prepared. Now, if I was naive, if I didn't have a shepherd over my life saying, Farah, sadly, sadly, there are people that will deny your truth. Sadly, there are people that will not believe because this person, this, this little boy that they've cared and nurtured for since his parents got divorced, you know, they're attached and they've got a biased opinion about him. Because remember, these are the people that gave me the green light about him. Remember, these are the people that thought that they knew him and they didn't know him. They didn't know him as intimately as I knew him. It's so sad that I had to be 150%, you know, sure that I had to cover myself that much for them to finally understand, okay, so this has happened, you know. I mean, I don't know, maybe we've gone off gone off the subject I've totally gone on a tangent but you know what I basically what I'm trying to say is that the person that I agreed the person that I said yes to that I do to for the rest of my life that person even though I had gotten the green lights and checked off all the checks that person ended up not was the complete opposite of what I I had wanted for my life so you felt like you said i do to a lie you know i don't want to believe i don't want to believe that i think that human nature got in the way i think that a little tiny seed of sin and it's it started with an ego okay six months into my marriage okay well i'm going i'm going to go off track here a little bit so we have this confrontation. I know about four women so far. I have proof of four women, okay? I make this announcement on Facebook that, hey, you're gonna see my name change. It's back to my, my maiden name because today I officially got divorced, you know. I'm trying to be as diplomatic as possible, you know. Uh, you know, this was not what I had planned, um, but sin gets in the way. Um, This, this is not, anyway, I, I post that and I find out there's a girl that messages me. This is a girl that used to be UPC, is no longer UPC. Two girls that I knew of went to our church. They did not do right by me like this girl did. She messaged me and said, you know, six months or somewhere in between six months of your marriage, you know, he messaged me and, you know, I was going through a separation of my husband. I'm going to call her Amy. 
Amy said, I was going through a separation with my husband and, you know, I had not heard from your husband in years. You know, we grew up kind of in the same circles in Michigan. And she said, he just randomly reached out to me one night and just, you know, I'm here as a shoulder for you to lean on. And she said, Farah, I, she said something that stood out to me. And this is, this is where the compassion rolls in. She said, Farah, I was sinning and I didn't know that I was sinning because she said, all I thought was that here's someone that's just trying to reach out to me and talk to me about my relationship problems. She said, when my husband and I decided that we were going to fix things and I told him that we were going to fix things, all of a sudden he turns possessive and basically says, you know, you can't leave me, you know, and she said it took my husband threatening him that we were going to tell you about our emotional affair before he finally backed down and backed away. And in hindsight, after hearing, after people coming forward about, you know, I'm so sorry, I wish I would have told you, but he was texting me inappropriately saying that I, that he, that I could lean on him you know, and that small seed of sin that started with him about, you know, just wanting an ego, just, just, and I'm not, I'm not a jealous type. I, I'm still not, you know, he was, he was just always surrounded by, you know, s- some of the younger girls in our youth group. And somebody was sitting beside me at a conference that we were at. And they said, does it bother you that your husband's always surrounded by these younger girls? And I just, I just kind of laughed. I was like, no. I said, you know, he just, he just likes attention. You know, I just, it's okay. I'm not, I'm not jealous. You know, if anything's really happening, I just, I didn't want to live in that sort of anxiety that people are out to get him or, or, or take him from me, right? I don't want to live in that mindset. So I just never. I just never wanted to think that way. I didn't want to live in that sort of that. W- that's really stressful, you know. To to wonder, to wonder if your spouse is cheating on you. I just and and maybe I was dumb, you know. I just believe that if if something is happening and I need to know about it, I know that God's going to reveal it. And in time, that was true. God proved to me again he made himself real he gave me an opportunity to separate myself from something that had decided that it no longer wanted to align with what we had decided our lives were going you know there's there's one person here in this in this marriage that is fighting for this marriage and there's one person here that's looking looking for a way out of it by feeding his ego, by trying to attach himself to other women. This isn't meant to be a bash bash session, but you know, when, when we talk about God bringing us through divorce, you can't talk about, you know, about the, the fairy tale that comes after that divorce. And I do have a fairy tale that I'm living in right now. You can't talk about that without recognizing the hell that you were living in previously. Right. 
And, you know, and I've gotten some flack for that. I've, I've never mentioned his name. I've, I've changed the names of these women that I've, you know, talked about just because it's much easier to just give, you know, a name to something instead of going back and referring to, oh, it was the fifth woman or the first woman, you know. <clears throat> so I don't, believe, I don't believe in calling out anyone by name when you're talking about your testimony, but you can't talk about the good times without referencing the bad times because it, it, it doesn't... It's a, it's it, a foil. Yeah, yeah it, it means nothing unless you know what you were living in. And so, you know, I've had a pastor's wife in California that has openly, publicly attacked me on her Facebook because, you know, I'm apparently living like a victim. And that just that just kind of proves her, you know, her ignorance because she she's never lived in my shoes. She doesn't know what it's like that that people are, are telling you that you should just shut up. And you know what? She's from that older generation that believes that everything should be hush hush. So I'm not letting I'm not letting her opinion of me stop me from talking about this. And I think it's gonna take people being willing to be the guinea pig, being willing to be the one that's, you know, that's that takes the hits for other people to be brave enough to talk about, you know, their divorce. And there are ways to talk about what you've went through, again, without naming names. You're telling your story. What happened, happened. Right. You can't take that from me. You cannot sit here and deny me what happened to me. You can't sit here and say that you felt neglected by the leaders in your church that's that's a flat out lie. If you think that I'm going to talk about this fairy tale and then leave out, you know, what the devil meant to destroy me. Because that's that's what it was. That's what this whole divorce was about. The enemy wanted to make sure that I walked away from church. Mm-hmm. And I refused. I knew I knew that if I surrounded myself with leadership that actually cared about me and had compassion towards me and that if I had the love and support of my family and if I kept God at the center of everything and just trusted him I knew I knew I I could make it and it was really because of the McKees that I've survived not not just a relationship with the Lord because anybody can do that right but it is the loneliest feeling to walk into a church, and many people have had to do it. Many divorcees have had to walk back into their churches because they've got kids. You know, I came out of this divorce not as unscathed as possible compared to people that have kids that have to see their ex in town. I'm 14 hours, I think right for in Memphis I'm 14 hours away from him I'll never have to see him again I don't have kids with him you know that survived and I don't I don't have to deal with the trauma that most divorcees have to deal with so I can't even speak to you know I I I got a free ticket to a new life when when I signed that divorce paper 
because I didn't have to look back. I started at a new church. I started a new job. And, you know, for five years, I just lived writing on God's grace, knowing that, okay, you know, my faith has been tested through this divorce and through this life of independence. I've had to live on my own, in my own apartment, by myself, taking care of myself, you know. God showed that he could supply and would supply all of my needs. Go ahead, Tony. You said that uh, you didn't have any kids with him that survived. Um, can you elaborate a little bit? Uh, so I got I got pregnant a few months after our second anniversary. Um, I I lost the baby uh, before the second trimester. Trimester. Before we get into that, I want to ask you a question right after that. Um, why would you bring a baby into your unhappiness? Well, it's kind of like I said, you know, I was looking for the 50-year mark. I was just hoping that, you know, this isn't just a relationship that I could just walk away from, right? No. I'm, I'm stuck. And so it wasn't that I thought a baby would fix it. It's that I thought that if, if we followed through with our little, you know, two-year plan, waiting two years before we have a kid, I thought maybe the perspective of being a dad would change him. And really, maybe it would change me. We weren't planning on getting pregnant that quick, you know. Um, I'd stopped taking contraceptive and almost immediately we got pregnant. I got pregnant. Um, I don't know why people say we. It's not like, you know, the man's Takes two to tango is why. So, I mean, it, it, it was just... Mind you, I did not find out about everything until after. If I'd known that he was having an affair before, you know, when this when this Amy girl had reached out to me, she said, I wanted to tell you, but I didn't know how you would take it. And I, I told her, I said, if you only knew that in the in my first week of being married to him, I was I was like, This is this is not what you had planned, God. This is not this is not the kind of love that you have have destined for people to live with there's no way you know he was physically abusive and then when the physical abuse was getting out of control then it turned to ver- verbal abuse and you can't prove verbal abuse you can't show emotional scars sometimes it was so bad i couldn't come to church because the, the bruises or the cuts or whatever was on places that i couldn't cover up so, Farrah, let so, me ask you something. Have you been restored? I believe I have. How? A, a lot of it, emotionally, I'm spiritual. I'm not the same. I'm not the same woman I was five years ago. I came out of this with a lot more determination. I have a I have a deeper understanding that not only I not only feel like I'm not a waste of space anymore I really feel like that God is for me and that he's fighting my battles because of every blessing that he's placed in my life every opportunity that he's placed in my life since this has happened 
I, uh, I don't know that restoration came at like a one specific moment. You know, I think for me, it's kind of just like, it's kind of like a diet, you know, like, you know what to do. Okay. I knew that I needed to lean on my shepherd. I knew that I needed to surround myself with wise counsel. And I knew that I needed, I needed a better prayer life. I needed a better, I needed to get in his word more than I had. And I'm not perfect. Life gets busy and, you know, inconsistencies happen. But just, you know, just like we diet, we know what to do, right? We know what what God's word tells us to do when when we're facing adversaries and when we're facing issues that probably nobody else around us is facing or is aware that we're even facing. It's the determination, and it it could only have come from God himself, the determination and the motivation to keep pressing when you feel like you're not worthy enough to get anything good. Because what does a divorce, anybody that's ever experienced divorce, what does a divorce tell you? It says you, were, you weren't enough, and that's why you were rejected. And I think the recovery part for me is understanding that I wasn't rejected, that God utilized this as the thing that's going to not give me a different perspective, a better compassion for people, but also put me at the front line to be the megaphone, to be the voice for people that are going through this and they're scared for me. And so I think I'm recovering because I have a drive to fight for people that can't that can't speak up. And it's so funny, you know, you we talk about pouring out and pouring out and pouring out and you would think that if you pour from a cup that I mean the cup the cups that we're used to eventually run out of liquid, right? But as I'm pouring out into people that are going through or have gone through this, I, I've never felt more poured in because of what I've, I've gone through. And I think because, you know, I mentioned earlier in this podcast, I'm, I'm such a complacent creature. Like, if you just leave me to my own self, like, I'm really okay just sitting on a pew and just kind of fading in the background. You know, there's there's misconception misconception that people who sing always want to be at the forefront. I'm I'm not I'm not that singer. <laughs> I'm really I'm really okay with like being a praise singer or being a background singer. Like, I would really be fine even just sitting in a pew, just singing in my own little place. So, so being that way, I think God had to push me. Not that God did this, but I think I think God knew that I would I would gain much more going through this than I would having just lived a quote unquote good and perfect life. And so I'm being restored while I'm trying to help someone else. So you said that you are a microphone to people. 
I want to give you an opportunity before we go into our conclusion here. I want you to be a microphone to the people. We want you to to speak to people and to the to the ladies in particular that have gone through the chaos that you've gone through. Um, as we were alluding to, you you did have a miscarriage. Um, you've gone through a divorce. You hit you know were mentally abused in that. Um, we want you to speak openly and honestly to those that have walked in those shoes that are listening and they've they they have those scars or even still those open wounds of of the pains they've experienced through relationships and through uh, miscarriages and, and whatever from a, we've had we we've had um Levon Hodges on and he spoke about miscarriage from the father's perspective we never really got in the mother's perspective yet and so we want you to speak to those that that have gone through what you've gone through about how they can be healed and give encouragement to them. Of course, you had great people that you were connected to, the McKees that helped you along the way. I want you to help be that person for them for the next little bit and talk to them. You know, it's a... Um You really have to decide amongst yourself that I'm not going to dwell in this depression. I'm not going to focus on what has happened to me. How can I move forward? I need I needed to find positive resources because I am naturally pessimistic, naturally prone to talking myself into a depression. I had, I had to keep myself surrounded by positive people and I had to look for positivity. So I just want to share a few quotes that I've really just... Yeah, please do. Yeah, I, I've really just leaned on and that have preached to me. So, you know, the first one is, if you don't heal what hurt you, you'll bleed on the people who didn't even cut you. I'm not wanting to blame anybody else for what has happened to me because who did this to me is 14 hours away. And so I'm not going to continue that cycle of hurt on other people. I'm not going to believe that every man is like this or that every church person is going to neglect me. You know, the devil can take you out. He can't take you out. He's going to try to take you out. But he knows that he can't. So he's going to do everything he can to wear you out. And I just want to remind you that now is not the time to give up because a change is coming. You're, you're not a prisoner of your past. It was just a life lesson. It wasn't a life sentence. Because as we know, every storm eventually runs out of rain. And every scar that we have is proof that God heals. And there's another quote that says, the best math you can learn is how to calculate the future cost of current decisions. I want to be the example. I don't want to be the excuse for somebody else. Well, she went through a divorce, and so she backslid. So that must mean that, that I can't count on anybody, so I'm going to backslide too. You know what? You're right. There's not a whole lot of people that I can count on one hand that I can count on to lead me through this divorce that have not been through this divorce because the leadership that goes through divorces are shunned and I don't hear from them. So I've got to find sources on my own. And that came in the, in the form of my shepherd and his wife. 
And nothing is more confusing than someone who gives good advice but sets a bad example. And I didn't want that to be said of my life. I want to be so positive that negative people don't want to be around me. And I want to be so authentic that I make it, I make it a safe territory, a safe haven for other people to be that, to be that way as well. You know, because you're going to absorb and you're going to believe whatever you feed your mind, whatever you feed your heart. So you need to feed yourself faith. You need to feed yourself truth. You need to feed yourself what the word of God says about your life, that he's never going to leave you or forsake you. And you need to remind yourself that even the people who betray you are part of the plan. <laughs> it's If it's not true of anybody else's life, it's true of mine. And, I, you know, I just want to challenge someone. If you could think back on the worst thing that could ever happen to you, and I thought, all right, the worst thing that could ever happen to me is for me to lose a child and for my husband to cheat on me. And those things happened to me. But I made a decision. I made a promise. I made a declaration to God that even if that worst case scenario were to happen, that I'm still going to be here. That I'm, I'm not the leaving kind, Jesus. I'm not going to be a weak sheep. That I'm not going to forsake you because you haven't forsaken me. And the only reason that I survived was because whatever was inside of me was burning a whole lot brighter than everything that was burning around me. And honestly, the biggest metaphoric middle finger that you can give to the enemy is to survive and to thrive after whatever was sent your way to destroy you and then to testify about it. Because it doesn't matter who's uncomfortable who's uncomfortable about, about what you're talking about. Just by touching even one person's life, you've done more damage to hell than if you'd chosen to remain silent just to appease the self-righteous, Pharisaic, haughty hypocrites who will never even matter to you or to the kingdom. And, you know, I recognize that I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit unorthodox. I'm pretty rough around the edges. I probably shouldn't have a platform. <laughs> but I'm not concerned about sparing people's feelings in order to be diplomatic because the Bible says the truth will offend people. I do, I do want to strive to be, you know, truthful, and I want to speak truth and love. But sometimes some people only respond to tough love. You know, and you don't – This is, here's my tough love. You don't have to suck up. You don't have to play the game to be used. As long as you stay submitted to the authority in your life, God will always make a way for what he's called you to do, no matter what politics are set in place to stifle you. He, he'll make, he's going to make you influential in beyond, beyond preaching at General Conference or singing at NYC. Because, I mean, I don't know. I'm not interested in being famous. I'm not looking to be a leader. I'm not, but I do recognize that, you know, this platform allows some sort of influence but I'm self-aware and I'm honest enough, especially to, to myself, that I understand that there is a level of influence because we all have it. I'm not, I'm not concerned about, all I'm concerned about, all I'm concerned about is empowering someone, especially someone that's listening to this podcast, to never give up. I just, I just want to encourage them that, that God can turn your mess into a message that will catapult you into the unique and specific ministry that he's called you to. Absolutely. So now you're living your fairy tale. I, <laughs> Tell us about that fairy tale. Hold on. When are you going to start your own podcast? Oh, I can't do this. <laughs> so you, you're you getting married here shortly. Uh, tell What's us about the date? That. Yeah, what? You don't have a date? I, I'm I'm keeping that date kind of private. Oh. Okay. Right. She looked at me with those eyes wide open and shook her head, no, for you can't see her. 
Yeah, tell us a little about that. <laughs> uh, Kip has been through the same situation I've been in. Um, you know, he's come from uh, a marriage that uh, the spouse wasn't faithful. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be respectful of his story because um, he's got kids and they'll probably listen to the podcast. Um, but we actually met. Uh, we actually met the same month I got engaged back in 2011. I was singing at Tupelo Children's Mansion, and a mutual friend introduced me to him. And then uh, last last summer or something like that, um, I I hadn't seen him since then, but I I saw this really cute guy that <laughs> that came to our church a few times. And I'm, I'm seeing on the platform, so I'm seeing him every time he, he's walking in the door, and he's standing in, you know, in one of the edge seats in the middle middle aisle. So about the second or third time he, he comes to visit, I'm, I like kind of lean over to Shara because we're in the corner of like the praise team or choir stands because I think we're about to lead a song or something. And I was like, who is that? I said, he is cute. And she's like, oh, girl, he's married. So I thought, oh, okay. So I just kind of like, you know, I find out that you're married, then I'm like, you know, I'm shunned. All of a sudden he's no longer good looking. <laughs> no. <laughs> but um, uh, so he he reintroduced himself to me after church. And he said, hey, we've actually met a few years ago. You know, Joe Doles, our friend, he said he introduced us. And so I was like, oh, yeah, that's okay. And so, so he was coming to POK for a while, and I found out that his um, his job, um, he works in, like in the roofing industry. His job had moved him to Harvey. For why are you smiling? This is <laughs> exciting to hear. Oh, thanks. Um, his job had moved him to Houston um, to help out with roofing because of Harvey or something, um, and so he had been there for a few months. And we were talking about doing a duet because he he was at our music conference singing a duet with a guy named Matt Linton. Hi, Matt, um, who travels around. He, he sings Southern Gospel, so he was singing with him. So he was like, when are we going to do a duet? And I'm like, dude, I just quit the team because, you know, I have such terrible asthma issues in Houston. So I, I'd kind of stepped down from uh, leading a whole lot. And so, um, so we were talking about a duet, and he had introduced me to his son, Tyler, who had just moved to Katy. So when I found that out, I was like, great. So that, and this is so awkward how this came about. I was like, great. So that means, you know, I get, I get to meet your wife and your other kids that come here. And he just kind of like froze up. And he was like, mm, I don't think that's going to happen. And then he just walked away. And so like, I'm just standing there like, okay, that was weird. And, and so one of the pastor's kids like s- swings around to me and she grabs me by the arm and she takes me in the corner. She was like, Farrah. She was like, he's going through a divorce. And I'm like, well, I didn't know that people needed to tell me these things. Cause I've just, I've just royally shoved my One thing I've learned on. tonight is we're too quiet about everything. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we'll talk about everybody's business except for the business needs to get out there. <laughs> I, I've just made a complete fool of myself because nobody gave me any any background story. Well, anyway, the next day he kind of texts me. He's like, you know, I'm so sorry about that. I was awkward. He said, I, I thought you knew. You know, I told the McKees what was going on in my life, and I just thought everyone knew. And I said, no, they're kind of a vault. If you tell them not to say anything, they're not going to say anything. So, um, 
he but he had mentioned to me before I found out that he was divorced he said hey I, I noticed you're not writing a whole lot and I said well on Facebook and I said well you know I don't really have a whole lot to write about and kind of going through a dry season kind of going through a low point as low of a point as I could get at such a amazing place as POK um I said I'm just kind of going through a dry season my my pen is run out of ink or something I just kind of I was trying to brush it off and he was like don't stop doing that he said when you revive those old posts he said you have no idea who you're reaching out to so after we had started a relationship um he said remember when I told you to to not stop writing and I said yeah he said I was talking about myself he said I I read one of your posts about divorce and he said he said I could not get enough he said I was looking through your whole Facebook profile just I was needing something and there wasn't anything out there for me about divorce he said I read every note I read every post he said what you were writing was was helping me out so I mean he got to know me through everything that I had bared on social media you know not for any attention but what I went through paved the way for the future that I'm about to walk into. It seems like it's crazy that everything that's important and crucial, it's just not obtainable. It's really not. You know, we can always find all these um, self-help books about how to grow financially and better my life in certain aspects, but when it really comes to the important things in life, it seems to just not be there. That's why it's important to share. Yeah, I agree. So you've got a single coming out at some point. You want to tell us a little bit about that? I've, I've got three singles. Two of them are with Kip. So Kip's a singer? Man, he can throw down. He's a white boy, but he sings like he black. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, he cute and he sing? Okay. Um <laughs> So we've got two singles together. One is, um, you know the song, So Will I? Uh, Melissa's shaking her head. Brian and I, we're out. The stars were made to worship, so will I. No? No. Okay. Well, I rewrote that song for our vows. So that's going to be premiering um, at our wedding. Um, when is that again? End of this month. On what day again? Nope. <laughs> you said no question was off limits. Yeah. End of this month. Oh, <laughs> I answered the question. <laughs> what time? Uh, it's in the evening, uh, but then it will it will be released the week after. Right. Um, and then we I we did another duet song that I'd written this song like years ago, and then my solo single, um, that's entitled Atonement. Um, really cool thing about that song, I was in my apartment. It was, you know, it was prayer revival. So I, when I got home from work, I was like, okay, it's been a long day at work. I'm really not in the mindset to pray. So I just pulled up this, I just searched on YouTube, you know, instrumental tracks for prayer or meditation or something like that. So this track, I'm I'm literally kneeling down in the chair. This is how crazy this is. I'm kneeling down in the chair. And the first track that pops up is this instrumental and words just started coming out from this soundtrack so my and it was just it's about every sin that you can imagine I mean it started out as you know some stuff that I'd gone through but then as the songs progressed I was like 
okay, I want to make this relatable for everyone, for everyone that has dealt with every sin. I wanted to include everything. So um, that song took about three years to write because I I just wanted to make sure that it was an all-inclusive song. Um, It's called Atonement. Um, It's it's an I'm sorry. It's just it's just an incredible track. I mean, my producer, (laughs) my producer BJ is fantastic, and you know I I told him, hey, this is the original track. I don't have the rights to this, but I need I need you to make it as close as possible. And he did phenomenal. I'm so excited to share these songs with y'all. More so excited about the Val song. And about my own single. What's the, what's the official release date of that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I really don't know the release dates yet, guys, because the the final tracks haven't even been given given to me. Well, Brian and I greatly appreciate you sitting down with us, but I want to ask you one last question. Yeah. Before, is it the question I think you're about to ask? I don't know. Is it? <laughs> Are you reading my mind right now? Is it the question I, I said you need to ask? Yeah. Oh no, let me ask one first. Ah. Oh. Let me ask one question before you, we get there. Okay. So um, before we get there, I just want to ask, is what is there anything in this conversation? Again, I appreciate you coming on. You've broken the record. and We've, we've got the longest podcast oh, man. now. I'm so sorry. No, that's no problem. But uh, if, if there's anything that you wanted to be sure to share that we uh, – even though we really didn't pay attention to time tonight – for, for the sake of time, any, anything we missed that you wanted to share? Uh, maybe you wanted to talk about like uh, what ministers can do to better help people that have gone through divorce, or or is it? Or we pretty well addressed everything with just give it a platform and not treat it like it's a cuss word to say the word divorce. Um, I think we've I think we've had such issues with divorce because I don't think enough people are are ready to admit that they don't know how to handle it. Um, I just, I, I think the church needs to understand that, you know, divorce is a death that cannot be buried and are sadly not open for people to mourn. So it, so it doesn't offer any closure. Um, you know, and divorce is its own accuser. You know, divorce tells you that you're a loser, that you're a failure, that you're unlovable, that you'll never be loved again because you've been rejected. Um, and the thing about divorce is that it takes only one person to mess up when a marriage takes two people. It only takes one spouse to destroy the marriage while the other one may be fighting for it. You know, and these are people that are married to someone who doesn't love them or the kids or God enough to keep the marriage alive. So again, divorce takes one, marriage takes two. Two can't have a successful marriage if two are not aligned. Divorce makes you dread even walking into church and seeing families and loving couples because, you know, it's a stark reminder that you were rejected and abandoned when all you did was show up at God's house looking to be healed and not tormented. And, you know, by by the way, I'm not saying that that's anyone's fault. I'm, I'm just simply telling you what's going on in a divorcee's head. You know, and again, I've mentioned this over and over. We need to stop telling people to stop talking about things. There is a right way to discuss divorce. You, you, like I said, you don't have to call out names. Um, but, you know, you only want the positive details while ignoring the negative parts because it makes you uncomfortable. That's ridiculous. You know, six, 
Six plus three equals nine, but so does five plus four. The way you do things isn't always the only way to do them. You know, don't be so pompous to believe that your way is the only way. You know, encourage other resources or learn how to swallow your pride and direct them to people that may be better suited to help, especially if you have no life experience to help you relate. You know, and stop excluding divorcees. There is a church that I know that won't even let divorcees sing in their choir. You know, and I don't know about y'all, but I've grown up knowing that most pastors won't marry divorcees, but the minute their kids go through that, all of a sudden, it's okay, right? Um, and I think the biggest, the biggest thing that I've seen lately is that some churches choose which families, you know, I, I know of some churches that choose what families get to stay and which ones have to leave. Here's my thing, either both stay or they both leave. We don't expect other people to leave when they commit other sins, so why are divorced people forced to do so? If a family wants to leave and starts fresh somewhere else, you know, let them. But don't throw them out. Don't force them. Don't even gently nudge them in that direction. And yes, this means I'm advocating for the adulterer. Because here's my, here's, here's the thing. I promise you that the people who commit adultery and never admit their sin, never show remorse, never apologize or repent, never make any efforts to make a complete change, I promise you they won't stick around long enough at your church. You don't have to throw anybody out because they're going to leave on their own. There's obviously no Holy Ghost guiding them anymore because the Holy Ghost never stops nagging us about the things God has commanded us to deal with. They may try to save face for a while and show up to church, but eventually an unsubmitted spirit finally gives into their flesh. You don't have to, you don't have to run them out. They're going to they're gonna leave on their own. But don't you dare put out the victimized spouse and the children because this wasn't their fault. They don't deserve to be put outside of the fence. These families chose your church and you as a pastor long before sin ever crept in. Because now more than ever, they need a shepherd to be a shepherd. Not the one who locks them outside of the gate to face the wolves on their own with no covering before finding another safe place. And that's if they find one. That's if your town is big enough to have more than one UPC church. And you know what? I recognize that maybe some people may have had some, may have made some bad calls about that, about divorcees in their church regarding how to handle them um, because I understand that sometimes decisions are made just trying to choose the lesser of two evils and I, I know that God can work with ignorance and I don't mean ignorance as in idiots I mean ignorance as in they just didn't have any wisdom for that subject but if you're hearing me on this podcast and you still choose to mistreat these families I absolutely believe that God will deal with you one day and soon for such a, a blatant act of, ne- of negligence. Brian, that's deep stuff right there. That is deep. My final question that Brian wouldn't let me get to a while ago. <clears throat> Farrah, you and Kip are 85 years old, holding hands on the front porch <laughs> as the grandkids play in the front yard. You're watching the sunset, and you reflect over your life. Is this all going to be worth it all someday, everything you've been through? Absolutely. I think this has set Kip and I up for, here's, this is what I've told someone. You know, Kip is on the restoration side of, of um, construction. Um, you know, he came to Houston because of Harvey. He's in Florida right now because of a hurricane that hit Panama City about 10 months ago. It's so funny 
that in both his personal life and in his work life, that he's, he's chasing after storms to restore. Oh, wow. And I think that everything that we went through is for that unique ministry. We're going to chase after the people that were left behind, that were damaged, and we're going to do everything we can to let you know that you're not alone and to let you know that you can be restored. Absolutely. There is always... Man, it is, you know, soaking that in, thinking that in that profession that he is after that restoration and, and knowing that that's a calling you're going to be involved in. That's what you want to give your life to because there's so many people out there, as you well know and as you've experienced, that have felt tarnish on themselves and, and breaking points. And they're looking for a place of where can I find that restoration? We want to be we want to be for the underdogs, and I think you know there's such a rise in divorce that we're seeing in our denomination, and I think that's the only way that we're ever going to deal with it. I think it's God forcing us to deal with that. You know, I I, I was looked down on a little bit you know, for talking about my divorce. Um, there was a apostolic blog that had featured me in their blog. Um, and it had gotten, in the time frame that it was posted, uh, you know, the, the co-owner of this blog said that we had gotten more hits, more likes, shares, comments on this blog, you know, in that time frame than we'd ever had because she said you know people don't want to know about the latest fashion they don't want to know they don't want another recipe they Small want talk yeah they want something real and it was because this blog was upc owned that enough of a small percentage of higher-ups decided that it was too uncomfortable for them to digest so they forced the hand of that blog to take down my interview and she told me, you know, it was a unanimous decision that no one wanted to take down that article. Article, And she said something, and she's a pastor's kid, and she said something that stood out to me. She said, it is clear that we as a church are still not ready to deal with divorce. And quite frankly, because of that, those people, they make us look like the cowardly, busybody Pharisees that people who have backslidden and walked away accuse us of accuse us of and i can't i can't really say that they're that they're liars at the risk of sounding charismatic because anybody y'all know anybody in our denomination that so much challenges or calls out you know the deficiencies that you know that we do have you know are automatically labeled as such you know we've created this church culture that used to condemn women for wearing so much as red open-toed shoes and it hasn't changed much. Not only are we judging and isolating people for not being holy enough based on a comparison of our personal standards, social media has created an outlet where men who claim to be leaders and pastors can use public or you know private forums to ridicule pastors who have failed or made mistakes or been humiliated by some heartless authority figure at camp meetings. 
So, you know, the message I'm getting at is the message I'm receiving is that it's perfectly okay to leave someone feeling condemned because they're not good or holy enough like you are. And it's okay to kick people when they're down, but talk about your testimony and all of a sudden you're the one to be shunned. You know, we're starting to use our large conferences to boast about how great we are because we're supposedly set apart when we're not any different than any other branch in our denomination who uses their conferences to smash televisions and talk about how much better they are than UPC. We may have the full truth, and we may, we may have some solid guidelines for modesty, but we are absolute, absolutely neglecting mirroring his personality. I would rather attend a church with messed up people who are seeking God than religious people who, who think they're his enforcers. Because how are we, how can I look back at 85 years old and tell you that it's been worth it all when without or without telling you about what made it worth it it made it worth it because god proved to me that he is all sufficient and that he's going to supply and utilize all of your hurts for something that can benefit his kingdom something that nobody else is willing to do nobody's willing to stand up and cause any rifts and so if it has to be me, I'm willing, I'm willing to be the guinea pig. I'm willing to take the arrows for other people because I needed somebody in my corner and, no, and there was nobody there. I think you've given us a lot to digest. And bringing it full circle to the way that we began the interview was we'd talk about, again, tell it like it is. Step on the toes. And, of course, saying things like you've said in this interview is going to ruffle feathers. People, they're going to get get uncomfortable in in some parts. But if nothing else, I hope that what is gained from from this, from people that are in places of influence, is if it causes you to take the four hours or however long this podcast has been (laughs) to, to consider some of these issues, then it was worth it all. If you're out there and you've gone through what what Farah has gone through and you find through this a place of restoration, it was it, this is, the whole thing has been worth it. This whole conversation has been worth it. And, and I think that one of the great values of having this conversation is gaining in the body to those that are willing to consider what can I do as an individual because again bringing it full circle it started with me being a little upset it started with me having a disagreement but in one sentence and one blog post i began to think and it motivated me with tony to start this platform and so though it ruffled my particular feathers without that statement this podcast does not exist and to every listener that's out there, it's statements like we've that have been discussed in this podcast that if you have been blessed by any of the podcasts we have ha- had out there, none of those conversations happen without someone first causing me to sit back and consider what can I do so that way it is not said of me that I'm behind the times because though I'm in my 20s, 
I'm a very young in ministry. I don't want to get to 50 years and realize I've lost the last almost 30 years because I was set in a way of doing things the way they've always been done instead of doing something that may cause people to get uncomfortable but made a change in the lives of individuals. Thank you for listening to The Crucial Conversation. I don't understand your ways
life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of His sweet face, all sorrow will erase. So. Bro-